But we are going to get into our next heresy today, the heresy of Docetism. I know you woke up this morning and you're like, oh man, I'm looking forward to some good talk about Docetism. Well, let me tell you, friends, you've come to the right place, all right? Uh, so let's uh, say a word of prayer and we'll dig in. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you've come to be among us as God in the flesh, in our very human flesh, dear Lord. And you dwell among us now by your spirit through your word. We pray that it would be an edifying investigation this morning. Help us to uh, go deeper in our faith and in our relationship and knowledge of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Docetism. First, a little, uh, just a, a little puzzle here. When you look at this picture, harder for you folks over there. When you look at this picture, what do you see? It's one of those. Yeah, but what do you see? I mean, it looks like a guy, uh, like an older guy with a hat. He's kind of, he's got a nice beard, closing his eyes. That Sam, did I hear you say it looks like me? I said pastor in Scotland. Oh, okay, oh, pastor in Scotland, or or, or pastor Tanetti in a few years. But uh, but then, check this out. Now, what do you see? A dog with a bone. You see it, yeah? What? It's the same thing. Looks like the same thing, only upside down. It's a picture of a dog with a bone. Now, well, docetism forces us to ask this question. Is Jesus who or what he seems to be? He might look like an old Scottish man with a hat, or is he a dog with a bone? Is he what he seems to be or something else? That's the crux of the question of this heresy, docetism. Before we get into it, let's have another quiz. You enjoyed it so much last week, so let's do another one. All right? These are all true or false questions. Again, this is rendering no judgment on your faith, okay? This is for fun and instructive purposes only. Oh. The first question, Jesus seemed to be fully human, but was not. True or false? Don't, don't, don't shout it out loud. You guys can't help yourselves. I know. Don't shout it out. True or false? Number two, Jesus truly wept, hungered, and became tired. Number three, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he laid aside his humanity. Number four, Jesus is our heavenly brother. And number five, Bodies are bad. <laughs> All right. We'll come back to those questions and their answers at the end of today's study. Okay, what is docetism? Docetism is the heresy that denies Jesus' full humanity. Humanity. So last week we looked at Arianism, and Arianism was the heresy that denied Jesus' what? His divinity. Yes. And so, in many respects, Docetism is kind of the, the inverse. It's the flip side of this. Arianism denied that Jesus was truly God, truly God. Docetism says, no, we're sure about that. We feel good about that. But was he really human? Are we certain that he actually shared our flesh and blood? It comes from the Greek word dokain, which means to seem. And so the idea of Docetism was that he just seemed like a man, but he wasn't actually. Unlike Arianism, you notice it doesn't have a particular heretic's name attached to it. 
Um, later in subsequent years, there would be a guy who uh, became especially known for um, uh, promulgating it, whose name was Apollinarius. So sometimes you hear of Docetism referred to as Apollinarianism, as one does, just when you're out and about, you know, somebody's talking about Apollinarianism, you're like, wait a second, isn't that Docetism? You're like, oh yeah, sorry, same thing, same thing. So Docetism emerges in the second century. It's a very early one. And in fact, as we'll see from some scriptures, it may have already been hanging around around the time of the apostles and the writing of, of the scriptures. As I say, it takes off in the fourth century with Apollinarius of Laodicea. All right, number two. What about Docetism? Docetism seeks to keep God from the messiness of bodies. I mean, bodies are such a pain. Can I get an amen? amen. Uh, oh, you betcha, right? Like, and there's so much about it that it just, it, they break down, they're kind of gross, and you start to think about, well, wait a second, God Almighty, he's going to, to share our body? It just doesn't seem right. I mean, the Son of God, he's perfect. And in that perfection, should he really have our frail human flesh. It's too messy. Well, docetism says, do I have a deal for you, right? Let's ditch that idea of the divine sharing a body, having a body. Instead, we're going to say, yeah, it seemed like he did. The important thing that we want to focus on is the fact that he was divine, that he was God, but not so much the in the flesh part of it. That's the idea. That's the, the, the notion there. So some of those key tenets then to underscore it. Jesus wasn't truly human, but he was more of a phantasm, okay? And there's a, a, a picture here, a painting of Helen of Troy, Rocky Pierce, talking about Helen a little bit ago. So uh, Helen, this was a story in ancient um, Greek lore that Helen came way before there was actually holograms, but that Helen, Helen came almost like a hologram or a phantasm. And the idea was, well, maybe Jesus was like Helen in that moment. He came and he was sort of like a hologram. You know, help us, Obi-Wan Kenobi, your only hope. Uh, <laughs> that, that was Jesus, right? <clears throat> or, uh, or another tenet of it, the divine spirit occupied him at baptism and left before the crucifixion. So it's like when Jesus was baptized, we hear that voice, you know, the spirit comes down in the form of a dove. Okay, there Jesus gets charged up, but then the spirit leaves him at his crucifixion. Um, again, this sought to shield divinity from the fleshly. It just seemed like these two things don't go together, right? One, uh, one of these is not like the other. That was the idea with docetism. And so, correspondingly, it emphasizes the heavenly side of the gospel to the detriment, I would say, and the church throughout the ages has said, to the earthly. It so emphasizes the heavenly that it diminishes the earthly. And again, this is what we've seen. We've talked about this with respect to heresies. They often have some purchase on something right, some element of truth, and yet they don't keep it in balance. They overcorrect and go too much in the direction of, of in one way or another. So when it comes to uh, docetism, we love the fact that docetism emphasizes that divinity of Jesus. As we saw last week with Arianism, there were many around this time that weren't. So we're like, yay! But then it's like, yeah, and also bodies, right? And we're like, what? Um, that's also important. But, you know, they, were, they had their scriptures. They had their, their places that they could go to. And through the ages, others have as well. I'm going to read to you a quote. This is not from the Bible. 
You can guess where it might be from. Well, listen to this. It says, And for their saying, Indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of Mary, the Messenger. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but another was made to resemble him to them. This is classic docetism. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following of assumption. They did not kill him for certain. Anybody want to guess where that comes from? The Quran. Bing, bing, bing. That comes from the Quran. Okay? So this is part of that. Uh, this is a, a Muslim belief about Jesus. He was a prophet, but he wasn't really. He was more. They had more of that docetic kind of view of Jesus. Isn't that fascinating? So these, this is, these are teachings that continued to linger on for some time. All right. We've got some contrasting issues then to, to um, lay out. So on the one hand, the Jewish position, which is also uh, the Aryan position. I mean, this is uh, the Jewish position, especially of Jesus' day, but still today, I suppose. How can a man be God? Okay? Again, Muslims would ask this as well. On the flip side, more of the Greek um, issue, sticking point, which is also the Docetist one, and in a sense the Muslim as well. How can God be a man? Okay? Again, there will be people who have issues with both sides of this. When you think about our, our world today, and to the extent that people have issues with Jesus, do you think that it's more as that, the Greek side or the Jewish side? Or are, do people more struggle with the divinity of Jesus or his humanity, would you say? The, the Greek side in the sense that they struggle that how, could, how can God be a man? Other, other thoughts? Divinity. The divinity. Yeah. Because we can prove historically that he existed. Sure. So okay. Prove that he was actually a man. Yeah. And then the question is, is whether he was God. Sure. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. Yep. Right. But was he more than that? Okay. Yeah. Good. I think another point. Uh huh. Well, yeah, no, that's fair, Court. So Court's saying, you know, for many people, they don't care one way or the other, right? Like, ah, who cares about Jesus? Some people think he was real, some think he wasn't, whatever, doesn't matter. To the extent that they do think about him, in many cases, I think that, that Michael and Rachel are probably right, that more often it's the case. I, you don't hear a lot of non-believers nowadays saying, you know what, I believe that Jesus was God, not sure that he was actually human, right? That might be out there. Um, there are some people who uh, I've heard of these sorts of things where they're like, pretty sure Jesus was alien. Like, mm, yes, tell me more about that. Um, but you don't find that too much except in the, the dark reaches of the Internet. Um, so I wouldn't worry about that. That being said, docetism does have other aspects of it that I think are alive and well in our day. And we'll talk about some of that, how we see some of these other attitudes present today. Let me just briefly, as I did this last week, trying to put the best construction on things, make a, a, a small case for docetism or try to, to get inside that mindset. Say, what were they thinking? What scriptures were they pointing to to see that they're not just patently insane, uh, but they are rather misled and misinterpreted? Okay, so as we say, number three, docetists stress Jesus's divinity. And then I look at a text like in John chapter 17. So if you've got your Bible, open to John 17. And this is from the uh, upper room. Discourse, this incredible 
prayer, we get to be kind of flies on the wall as Jesus is praying. Praying to God the Father. So it's actually, it's the whole chapter, it's a long prayer. I'm just going to excerpt a, a section of it for us here. So, get your Bible, open to John chapter 17, and I'm going to pick up with verse 11. Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. See? It would lay a lot of stress on that. I don't ask that you keep, take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Okay, so a docetist read a text such as John 17 and say, listen, it says right there, Jesus tells us, I am not of the world. They'd say that what he means there is that he is not worldly. He does not share our human likeness. He is just one who has, has come among us in some kind of form or kind of looks like a man, but he's not actually a man. Now, we've talked about principles of biblical interpretation, and one of those key ones was reading things in context. So just reading this text in context, are there any details that you might point to that would push back against that reading that says, oh, this is telling us Jesus wasn't really a man because he's not of the world? Is there anything that you could see in there that says, ah, not so fast, my fellow Apollinarian? Um, yeah, Leslie. Verse 18. Okay, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Okay, so you, he has been sent into the world. That's something that happens. So you can't, he might not be of the world, but he has been sent into the world. Okay, good. What else? He says, I, I am not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. They are not, they are not of the world. Okay. So is that telling us then, following that docetist logic, that the disciples are not human beings? Aliens. They're not people? They are also aliens. Yes. Thank you, Hans. No, of course. They're people. They're flesh and blood. And so when we read that, we see, okay, wait a second. So if it's not the case that the disciples are not people, then we can't just say that this phrase and expression means that Jesus is not a person. So then what, what does it mean? It, it, forces us to ask or to give different explanations or what it might mean to be not of the world. And how might you say that? Or what other kind of rationale or explanation might you give for that phrase, not of the world? What's another way to understand that? Yeah, Court? Not a lover of the world. Okay, not a lover of the world. Um, so it says in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or things up in the world. So it could be not a lover of the world. Yeah. A like or kind. Say again? A like or kind. Okay, a like or kind. So I'm not, I'm not like so many of the people that you see walking around in the world. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts on that? So I, I think uh, all these could be uh, ways to, to look at that. That fundamentally when Jesus says, I am not of the world, it's true he's not from the world, 
Perhaps that's another way to look at it. He's not from the world. His genesis, he is begotten of the Father. And as was point, as Leslie pointed out, he is sent forth from the Father into the world. But um, to say, to use this, that to say, well, he's, he's not actually human, I think is a, a stretch, to put it mildly. And frankly, when it comes to scripture for the Docetists, they're pretty light on it. It much more is starting from these kind of Greek presuppositions that, ah, God would never actually be a man. Like that, he just wouldn't do that. In other words, starting from these more foundational assumptions about what must be true of the world, they then jump to this idea that, well, Jesus couldn't be a man because as we all know, God would never be a man. And we all do this. People still do this today. You start from your basic assumptions or presuppositions. This is my position. This is what I hold. And then, you know, we'll find some reasons to explain or to answer why we believe what we believe. Sometimes that can be the case. We can all be guilty of that. Docetists no less than the, the rest of us. But what's at stake with this? When Jesus says, I, before Abraham was, I am. When, he, when we see his divinity um, on display, if he's not fully human, Jesus is not fully human, then bodily life is devalued then the fact that we are humans, we, for all of our struggles that we experience in the body, then we would have to say at the end of the day, well, and God's like, yep, you're right. Got to get you out of those bodies as quick as possible because they're not any good. When I made them at the beginning and I said it is good, you know, on second thought, not so much, all right? Jesus isn't fully human. Bodily life is devalued. Secondly, Jesus isn't fully human. Then God lacks sympathy. And I mean it in its root sense. The word sympathy comes from a Greek root, which means to suffer with. And if Jesus doesn't actually share our human flesh, then he hasn't really suffered with us. Oh, you could say that he did kind of emotionally or, or spiritually or something like that. But the claim of the scriptures is that Jesus truly suffered and endured what we endure as humans, body and soul. And then once again, as we saw this last week with Arianism, if Jesus isn't fully human, then humanity's not redeemed. This is just the flip side of Arianism's problem. Remember, we need the bridge, right? We need one who's both God and man, who's able to, to bring those two together. There's a, a saying among the church fathers, what he did not assume, he did not heal. What he did not assume, he did not heal. If Jesus did not assume our human flesh, take it on to himself, then he did not heal it. Then it's left lost and perishing apart from God. So there's a lot at stake, once again, with docetism, as we're seeing with each of these heresies. All right, I'll pause there for questions, comments, reflections so far. Yeah, go ahead, George. Um, this docetism, when did that appear, that Yes, so no later than the second century, but uh, very likely even earlier. And we're going to look at some scriptures in a moment that, that point to that, but perhaps as early as the, the late first century. Because again, this, is this very Greek way of thinking, it wouldn't have taken long for people who were steeped in that worldview to ha have pause when they hear about this message of the gospel and the, the word becoming flesh. Yeah, Lily? So what do they believe? Do they believe Jesus to be a liar then? Oh, because, say more about that. Right, and, and son of, the son of man. Well, I mean, yeah, right. No, a, this is a good point. So I'm trying to think of like 
a moment when Jesus makes a claim like, I am a man. Now he says the son of man, of course, quite a bit. But does he say, I am a human being per se? Because like, you know, if somebody comes up to you and they're, they're like, you know, I'm a human being. Be like, again, you sound like an alien. Like normal people don't, me thinks thou doth protest too much, right? Um, so, what's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. But this is, those are the sorts of things that they would, they would um, kind of argue away and say, yes, we, that's what it looks like. That's what appears. So maybe the bigger question is, is God a liar that he, that he would send forth this, this kind of hologram? And I don't think that they would have too many, too many qualms about that for some reason. Yes, Sandy. Okay, so you're asking yeah, for what we do, what we do believe. Well, yes. Yeah, I mean, he couldn't Right. Right. So yes. Yeah. So the, part of this question becomes this is this is good. So um, distinguishing that sinful human nature apart from apart from a body. Part of the challenge here is um, nomenclature. So oftentimes, especially in, in Paul's epistles, he'll talk about the flesh. And, you know, how problematic the flesh is. And the, the flesh is set against God and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we hear that. And when we hear flesh, what's the first thing that you think of? You think of skin, right? You think of a body. Um, but when Paul uses that term, he's not thinking of, like, our physical bodies. But more, and I think the NIV translates it this way, our sinful nature. Our sinful nature. Not the flesh, not the body as such. But that corrupt human nature, the inclination to turn away from God. But that is not essentially the, what it means to be human. Again, you go back to Genesis, God is creating human bodies in Genesis 1 and 2 before sin has entered into the world. And so to be a human, to be in a body, is not essentially, naturally evil. It's good. It's good, but it's been corrupted. And so making that distinction is vital. Key, thank you for pointing that out, Sandy. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Michael. Right, the communion passage says, this is my body, which is broken. Yeah, yes. I don't know how you get around. Good, that's a great connection. That's right. If, I mean, and we could have put that at the stakes too. If, if Jesus was not physically present at the Last Supper and making that institution of the sacrament, then what good is this? You know, what good, what good is the, the so-called sacrament if he's not really present, um, not just in like our thoughts, but in a, in a way beyond our knowing physically and spiritually with us. Yeah, great point. So let's, let's do some refuting of docetism. You guys are ready to do that, I can tell. So, so number four, <clears throat> to use a fancy term here, Jesus shows finitude. And what I mean by that is he demonstrates that he's a human in his life and the, that we are finite beings. We are finite creatures as human beings. And Jesus also demonstrates this finitude in his life and in his ministry. What are some examples that you can think of, moments where we see Jesus in experiencing human-type limitations and stuff? Yeah. He sleeps. I often go back to this, right? Don't forget, what would Jesus do? Taking a nap is one of the options, right? Jesus sleeps. What else? He gets hungry. And he eats. Yeah, he's very hungry. What's it? He cries. He weeps. Yes. He gets angry. Other things? 
feels pain. He's tempted. All of these things are examples of the fact that he, he was not just doing a little dog and pony show, right? This is not a hologram showing up, but this is one who truly was in our human flesh, felt the things that we endured. Um, I mean, our hymn of the day today, just this awesome manly hymn, if I can put it that way. Sorry, ladies. But, oh, oh love how deep. You know, oh, love how deep. Oh. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but it's so cool how it um, relates the, the history of our Lord's, you know, for us, he was born, for us, and just that resounding, it's very Lutheran in the sense, it's like, for us, for us, for us. Luther said those two little words encapsulate that gospel message. For us, for us. He, he, he suffered. He was buried. Real things in his body. That's what he endured. Yeah, Court. If he wouldn't have been human, would Satan have even bothered? Oh, yes, great point. If he, if he wasn't human, would Satan have even bothered? Would he just been like, oh, you guys, don't worry about this. It's just a show. He's just kind of pretending. But no, he's an actual one of us. So Jesus shows us finitude. Talk about some examples of it. Oof. There's some paintings of uh, the temptation where Jesus just looks really triumphant and victorious. Like 40 days, pff, no big deal. No. This one, I, I forget who the artist is. I think gets it a better, you can just kind of feel that sense of, you know, the acute loneliness and hunger, pain that he would have endured for 40 days. Hebrews 5 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus, his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The fact that he learned, too. Scripture says that he grew in wisdom and in stature. You're like, but wait a second. Didn't he know as like as a baby, as a toddler, he's walking around and like, one day I'm gonna be on the cross like. These are things that are way beyond our pay grade, right? Uh, but it's undeniably the case, Scripture is clear, that he did learn, he did grow. It wasn't like the Matrix. There's another, there's another movie reference for me. It wasn't like the Matrix where Jesus was born, just downloaded with everything. Like, as a human, he grew into this also. Uh-huh. Crazy stuff. What's that, Dave? Aha uh-huh moments. Aha uh-huh moments, yes. Uh, can you imagine having Jesus as, as a student, though, like in Sunday school or Saturday school, Sabbath school, is like, this is tough. This is tough. He's, he's kind of, I feel like he should be teaching. Um, Jesus not only shows finitude, he is decidedly fleshly. All right? So John chapter 20 underscores this. This is the day of the resurrection, so go to John 20, well-known passage here. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. And eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, but believe. Caravaggio has this incredible painting. I think I've, I've used it in a sermon before. But he, Caravaggio especially just is bringing out the fleshly nature. It's kind of gross. Not going to lie to you. It's a little gross. He goes further than what the scripture says. Jesus invites Thomas 
to touch him. Doesn't say that he did. And Caravaggio is telling, there's Thomas. Okay. Um, but point being, like, this is a real guy, a real body. It, you can actually touch and feel his wounds that he has. And it says in 1 John 4, and this is, you know, to George's question about when did this show up, the letter of 1 John seems very much to have something like the, the docetism heresy in view because John is really stressing throughout that letter the humanity of Jesus as well as his divinity. But he says just flat out in 1 John 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. First John starts his letter and he says, that which we have seen and heard and our hands have touched concerning the word of life. He's stressing and, and uh, underscoring that very fleshly human side of Jesus in addition to his divine side. All right. Oh, and then Matthew 28. This is, again, the resurrection. Behold, Jesus is walking along the way. He's, he's come out of the grave, and he meets the women, and he says to them, oh, it says greetings. This always bugs me. The Greek word there is kaira, which means rejoice. That's Jesus' first word out of the grave. Rejoice. And we translate greetings. <laughs> hey, guys. Good to see you. Just was in the grave, got great sleep. No, rejoice! He came that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be made full. Of course, that's the first word he's saying out. So rejoice! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And uh, my teacher, Dr. Jeff Gibbs, points out that in the ancient world, they, they believed in ghosts. They had an understanding of this. And this comes up in other moments in those resurrection appearances. And then, as now, one thing that ghosts don't have is feet. They take hold of his feet because he's a real human being. And so Dr. Gibbs suggests that we could have a new saying on Easter. He has feet. He has feet indeed. Hallelujah. <laughs> we'll try that out this coming, this coming Easter. All right, and number six then, refuting docetism, humanity has ascended. And this is just profound. Jesus, go to Ephesians 4. When we talk about the ascension, Jesus uh, you know, risen from the dead and then ascending to the right hand of the Father. Um, let, let me just read this, this passage from Ephesians chapter 4. Being up with verse 7. It says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Ah. When Jesus ascends into heaven, he ascends as the God-man. He does not slough off his human flesh like a snake shedding its skin. But at the right hand 
of God the Father in heaven is a human, a God-man, one who is fully divine but also fully human. Pastor, how could this possibly be? I don't know. Okay? Except to say that when we talk about the right hand of God, don't picture any particular place. Don't think of you know, Pluto or something like that. Um, but the right hand of God, theologians say, is all things, just like Paul says here in Ephesians 4. To be at the right hand of God means that you are able to fill all things. The technical term for it is ubiquity. He is ubiquitous because now at God's right hand, he is present, able to be present everywhere. His human flesh has been glorified. I think that's part of what it means for his flesh to be glorified too in the resurrection. He's able to go through walls. You know, he, uh, physicists, this is where I really get beyond myself, but physicists talk about how we actually have something like 12, 13, 14 dimensions. Maybe some of you guys are, are more into this, but like string theory will talk about this. Like we only have access to three or four dimensions if you think of time, but that in reality, there's like 14 and Jesus in his resurrected flesh now has access to all of them. All right. Um, but to say that the risen Lord at the right hand of the Father still bears our flesh just shows you how highly God thinks of it. Problem isn't being in bodies. Problem is the extent to which it's corrupted and corruptible because of sin. All right, pause there. Yeah, go ahead, Corey. Yeah, if, you know, court asked, did God create all those dimensions? Do they exist? And yeah, Jeff's absolutely right. If it exists, God made it. We might not have access to all of it. I mean, one of the things that blows my mind too, we say in the creed, a creator of all things, both visible and invisible. And again, physicists will, will say that uh, things that so-called dark matter, stuff that we can't see, amounts to perhaps 96% of all the things in the universe. Right? There's so much, and they just mean that in, in kind of like a physical sense. But we can go way beyond that. We're like, listen, it is, there's so much there that we can't grasp or wrap our minds around, but that God in his infinite wisdom has created and someday we'll be able to have access to. Hopefully. Yeah, Hans? You talk about God's right hand. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Sons of Thunder wanted to be one on his right hand and one on his left. Yes. Being on the left hand. I, yes, that's a good question. So Hans is, is pointing out how James and John had asked, can we be at your right hand and at your left? And if being at the right hand means that you're filling all things, all creation, what does it mean that you're at the left hand? You're in New Jersey. I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's a good question. What's that? that? That's the dark matter. Yeah, exactly. You're invisible. Yes, yeah, Sarah? Oh, well, 100%. Yes. Yeah, they were thinking of an earthly yes. Like, oh, we want to be your, your, your top man. Yep, exactly. We want, we want to be your bouncers. Hey. Yeah, no question. They're thinking in very earthly terms, for sure. Yeah, Rachel? Oh, okay. Just stretch. Okay. So, cool. All right. Well, let's bring it home then. Again, Jesus can't be our brother if he hasn't shared our flesh. And this is profound. We talk about God as our Father. And sometimes you'll hear people give the impression that Jesus is our Father as well. Strictly speaking, that's not a biblical position. The way the scriptures speak is that God the Father is our Father. 
Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus is our brother. He's the one who has come down to, to save us. I'll give you a text here. I'm not making this stuff up. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. I think this, this passage is probably alluded to already, but um, just a powerful statement of this. Oh, I'll have you guys know, too, we had the uh, test with the confirmation kids for all the books of the Bible this week, and they pretty much all aced it, except for my own son. But um, we're... (laughs) True story. Buddy's working on it. We'll get him there. It's all good. It's all good. I'm very proud of the kids. They've been working really hard. Okay. Um, Hebrews 4, verse 14 says, Since then, we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is the one who has come in our very flesh in order that he might know everything that we endure and go through and be, be able to then, as our sympathetic high priest, to come before God the Father in our place and on our behalf. And um, uh, previous to that, in chapter 2, if you want to just look to the, the left there, in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them what? Brothers. Or brothers and sisters. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus is our big brother. And again, Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we know then that we have a Lord, a Savior, who is not only for us, but also with us. We've got our Father in heaven, but also our big brother Jesus, who's gone before and it's now one of the gifts of having a big brother, for those of you who did, is to, to know, okay, there's somebody who's, who's been there before, to learn from, to, to grow from. And that's the, the gift that we have in our Lord Jesus. All right, so then closing thoughts, how not to be a docetist. Be like Caravaggio, taint incredible pictures. Cultivate negative capability. This is a, a phrase from the author Keats who says, this is the capacity for being in uncertainties and mysteries without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. In other words, being comfortable with mystery, right? We see this with a lot of our heresies, and this applies to Docetism as well. Being able to, to live in that space where it's like, he's both God and man, how can that be? Secondly, uh, one author I read recommending how not to be a docetist, he says, when you're reading the Gospels, try starting with Mark. And I read this um, after we started our Dwell Richly. But the reason he says that is because if you start with John, John is perhaps the the Gospel that most stresses Jesus' divinity. And if if that's your, your main or even only picture of Jesus, yeah, I can see how one might skew docetists. You'd still be wrong, but yeah, I, I can better understand it. He says, if you start with Mark, you can't help but see Jesus in all of his gritty earthiness as well as his divinity. That's an interesting recommendation. I put it in there just because it vindicates us having started with Mark and dwell richly. 
but some of you have asked, why did we start with Mark? Why didn't we start with Matthew? And the simple answer is because Mark was the shortest. And we started with half of a month in September. But it worked out, right? Thirdly, honor Jesus' parents. Not only his earthly mother, right, his physical mother, Mary, but even his adopted father, Joseph, to recognize that Jesus, again, in, uh, there's the Christmas hymn, Once in Royal David City. And that, that hymn um, it gets at this as well. Oh, I thought I had the words, but I don't have it. I know the tune. But there's a line in there about how just like us, you know, he, he was a child just like us, he grew. Connie, do you know the line off the top of your head? You know what I'm talking about, though, right? I do. Okay, good. Good enough. We'll look it up later. Uh, and then, finally, extol the body. Listen, God created your body. In Christ, he has redeemed your body and soul. And in the resurrection, he is going to raise from the grave your body. I say almost those exact words at the committal. When we, we lay someone in the ground in their temporary resting place, we place them there, we say, may God the Father who created this body, may God the Son who by his blood redeemed this body, may God the Holy Spirit keep this body until the day of the resurrection of all flesh. If you don't honor bodies, if you act as though it doesn't matter, you're not being a faithful Christian in that way. You're being a docetist. God forbid that you end up like one of those heretics. <laughs> honor this flesh. You, that doesn't mean you can't groan. doesn't mean you can't be frustrated with it. All the more reason then, as it says in Romans 8, though we groan, we await the resurrection, the redemption of our bodies when Jesus comes again. Okay then. Quiz answers. Number one. Jesus seemed to be fully human but was not true or false. False. That's the docetist heresy in a nutshell. He seemed to be human, but he wasn't. Number two, Jesus truly wept, hungered, and became tired. True. Absolutely. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he laid aside his humanity. True or false? False. He's still mysteriously able to be fully human and fully divine. Fourth, Jesus is our heavenly brother. True. True. God the Father is our Heavenly Father. Jesus is our Heavenly Brother. And then last one, bodies are bad. False, 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 false. They struggle, it's hard, but they're good, and God will raise them from the dead. All right, yeah, go ahead, Ken. On this last point of the outline, the body, that's a uh, premise of the Christian faith, the basic doctrine of the Christian church. Yeah, it? yeah. Then how can any Christian be a poor abortion? Sure, right. I, that's the first thing that jumped out at me. These are, these are good God gifts of God. Right. To, on, to honor the body and to honor every body. Big, little, everywhere in between. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Hans? I have a question for. I think this. Umbridge. Jesus is our heavenly brother. He is our brother. Because if you're saying he's our heavenly brother, touche. That would be Gnosticism. Oh, all right. All right. I like that. He's just our brother. Full stop. He's heavenly. He's earthly. Brings it all together in his person. Well played. And on that note, we'll conclude today. Thank you very much. Next week, we're going to have a special guest for Bible study, um, the president of Lutheran Braille Workers.
um, on which Priscilla sits on that board and is invited and made this connection. So very excited about that. He's going to come and share with us about this ministry. So look forward to that. And then the week after, we'll continue with our heresy study. So thanks very much, guys. See you then.